Well, good morning. Well, here's the reality of it. That last part that JT said about the being held accountable for what I preach and what I say, I'm terrified every time I get up here. Like, legitimately shaking people. Because that's a huge responsibility. So before I begin my sermon, I just want you guys to know that I am preaching from what the Lord has taught me. I have not arrived. I do not know everything about any subject about the Bible. I am teaching you as far as the Lord has taught me. And I am just a man. So there are still things that I am in process of learning. So if I make mistakes and things like that, just stick with me. Uh, we'll, we'll talk it out. We'll figure it out. But know that I am up here not because I think I know stuff, but because I humbly, and obe- I humbly want to be obedient to what the Lord has called me to do. And that is procla- proclaim His Word. And so, if you would, just before we begin, I know it's been a lot of prayer so far, but I'd love to just pray with you all because simply, I need it. Dear Heavenly Father, you are a good and awesome God. I thank you for being who you are, for being faithful, for being loving, for being gentle, for being sovereign and all-powerful, Lord. Because of who you are and your character, Lord, we can come before you with confidence. I can stand up here and preach with confidence knowing that it's not about my ability, but about yours. And Lord, that is so freeing. So I pray that you would just use me, teach all of us this morning. And Lord, just give me clarity of thought and of speech in, in the way that I communicate things that, that your word and, and who you are would be proclaimed and that your gospel will be clear. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this morning. In your holy, precious, life-giving name. Amen. So this morning, I also have the huge task of or it's huge to me, opening up the beginning of our next series. We're going to actually be talking about Advent. So, being a missionary kid, I, there was a lot of Advent. I grew up in a very Southern Baptist, uh, like very Southern Baptist churches, and almost every Advent it was hope, love, joy, and peace. And they lit these cool little candles, and we all had this little kind of ceremony thing. Great thing to do. Those are great topics to talk about. Um, they, they help us focus or even refocus our vision on or perspective on what Advent is about, that these things are now available to us because of Christ. Um, I've also heard sermons preached on the New Covenant that, that Christ being the author of the New Covenant, that, you know, these are the things that pertain to us under the new covenant. Again, another beautiful thing to be talking about. Um, This morning, I'd like to take a little bit of a different spin on it. Still talking about Advent, still talking about Christ, um, but I don't want to talk about hope, love, joy, and peace. I don't want to talk about the new covenant What I want to do is I want to talk about the one who is the author of the New Covenant. I want to talk about the one, the person who is love, who is our hope, who is joy, 
and who is peace. So this morning, we're going to talk about Jesus Christ and typical freshwater passion. And I am so excited. I am so excited to talk about it. So if you would, we're going to go ahead and we're going to be opening up to Hebrews 2, verses 9 through 17. And as you're turning there, I'm just going to define what Advent means. Advent, by definition, means the death or means the arrival of something long anticipated. And in the Jewish context, they were awaiting their king. They were awaiting the one to ride in on a chariot with a massive army where the emperors of Rome's knees were knocking and, and to relieve them from their oppression of Rome. That, that's what they were waiting for. That's what they were looking for. That's not how Christ came. He came born in a manger in a stall, in a trough, a feeding trough, quietly, humbly, and meekly. So just we're going to go ahead and we'll dive in. I'm going to have to actually hold this close because my printer for some reason printed these verses in gray and I could not get them to change. So here we go. Um, Hebrews 2, 9 through 17. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should, make the founder, should be made the founder of their salvation, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise took, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So this morning, again, we're going to be celebrating Advent. We're going to be talking about the first Advent of Christ, the first coming of Christ. A mystery revealed. But what was that mystery? And why was it a mystery? We're going to take a step back. We've been spending time in the Old Testament as a church, and it's been a blast. Throughout the entire Old Testament, you see prophecies about the coming Messiah. Um, you see everything from where he'd be born to how he'd die. You see a lot of them. I could probably name off about eight to ten of them. That's about how many prophecies I know. And I wanted to ask the question, how many prophecies in the Old Testament are there? 
So I'm actually going to ask a question. Throw me out a couple guesses. Okay, be quiet, Jake. <laughs> yeah, freaking elders. Okay, so 351 prophecies about the coming Messiah. Now, that seems like a rather large number, okay? When I started looking at it, there are the estimated 30 authors of the Old Testament, and of those 30 authors, it spanned over 1,500 years of time that the Old Testament was written. And out of those 30 authors, authors over 1,500 years, there are 351 prophecies. And, and there's this guy, his name's Don Stoner, he wrote a book called The Paradox of Existence. And in this book, he takes eight prophecies. He takes eight of the 351, and he takes kind of the bigger ones, the getting sold for 30 pieces of silver, dying on a cross, um, being born in a manger, those, those larger ones, just for some examples. And he mathematically works out the probability of these simple eight prophecies being fulfilled in one person. Now, I'm no mathematician, but as he works it out, the likelihood of eight prophecies being fulfilled in one man is one in one quintillion. And that is a word I have just learned this week. That is a one with 15 zeros behind it. That doesn't make sense because, again, we're not mathematicians, right? Or I'm not. So he breaks it down in an analogy. He says, okay, imagine you take the entire state of Texas. You fill it two foot deep with silver dollars. Then you fly over the state of Texas. You mark one of those silver dollars. You chuck it out of plane, land the plane, grab some random guy, blindfold him, say, find the, quarter, or find the silver dollar I marked. That's the probability that eight of those prophecies would be fulfilled in one man. That is freaking incredible. And I got to stop saying that word, but it's part of my vocabulary, so I'm sorry. <laughs> it's just, it just excites me. And I, I, like, it doesn't make sense to me that it is that much, that improbable. And yet in the person of Christ, from the moment he was born to the moment he died, he filled every one of those 351 prophecies. Now, is that not a sovereign and all-powerful God? That's incredible. But the fun part is, there's something even more amazing about this. We, we, we think of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, starting at the moment that he was born in that manger, but that was not the divine Son's beginning. He's part of the triune God, the unchanging, the all-powerful, the always-present, the holy, the perfect God. He was there when Adam or when the world was created. He was there when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. He was there from the beginning. He watched mankind degrade so far that God flooded the earth and started over with Noah and his family. He watched as they arrogantly built a tower to try to reach the heavens because, hey, we're pretty much as good as God. He watched mankind from literally the first man on walk in a manner that chose something other than Him. And yet, that divine Son from the beginning of time knew 
the role he was going to play to redeem his wretched man. To redeem them from being forsaken to being his son or his daughter to calling people his bride. He knew the role. Again, is that not amazing? He did all of that for us because that's how important we are to him. Thinking about that, I, I think of God and, and just his divine characteristics and even how the, the New Testament talks about God. That he is above every other name. That he is seated in the heavenlies. That he is authority over everything and everyone in heaven, earth, and under the earth. It is all God. And I start thinking about that, and then I start thinking about the fact that he did not count equality with God something to be grasped and came down in the form of a servant. How humble. I can, I can hardly stand when someone looks at me wrong because I think they might be judging my character. He gave up everything and made himself the lowest of the low for the very purpose of redeeming people who hated him, who beat him, who eventually murdered him. He came, he had his mom change his diaper. He had his siblings tattle on him. He had his parents wrongly discipline him. He had his people hate him. The religious, the religious despised him. He did all of that because that's how important it was to restore a relationship with man that was broken from the first man. Philippians 2, 6-11 says it so much better than I could. It says, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We see that this, that God, though he is the I am, though he is all-powerful, though he is perfect, he, he humbled himself not only by his image, but also his his divine attributes. He was still fully God. I'm not, when I say he gave up his divine attributes, I'm saying he gave up the fact that he wasn't in his glorious, his form. He was fully man. He functioned like a man. He got tired. He had to sleep. He had to eat. He had to do all the things that we do. He functioned as a man. He gave up equality with God and emptied himself to be like us. He did something that was different than any other deity in the history of religion. 
He didn't come down in glory. He didn't come down in power. He didn't come down with making people love him. He came down humbly, taking the form of man, walking through life, and in that walking, allowed himself to be governed, raised, judged, and eventually murdered by his creation. What a humble God. And again, it blows me away when you think about the prophecies he fulfilled, when you think about the fact that it wasn't the beginning that he is God, and then he chose to do that. I have a hard time when my son argues with me. He's two. I'm like, dude, look, no, seriously, I'm the boss here. You need to listen to me. He's like, no, daddy, I don't want to. You, okay, here, there's, I'm going to count to three. There's three options, okay? And then we go through this multiple times until I get my son to do what I want because I cannot take the fact that he is going against my authority and my own pride. My two-year-old son, he has no idea what's going on. He just wants to play and watch dinosaurs. That's it. That's about his life right there and sometimes food. But, but I struggle with that and yet the God of eternity humbled himself to the point of dying a criminal's death on the cross for me, the guy who can't let his son have one. It's amazing. And here, uh, I've been, I, all that is nice background foundational information. The next couple things I'm going to talk about are the beautiful parts about Advent. Christ did this because it was necessary for our salvation. He did this because there was no possible way that you guys could, that we as humanity could be restored with him without Christ stepping in and sacrificing himself for us. Romans 5.17 says, For if by one man's trespasses death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life of the one man, Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is talking about uh, in verses 2.14-17. Uh, and again, I'm just going to read it. And again, it's in gray. Don't know why, but it is. Um, but I'm, I just want to read these verses again to refresh our mind about what we're talking, or what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. It says, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make the propitiation for the sins of the people. And propitiation is just a big word for payment, but that's how the verse says it, so that's how I read it. Because Christ, church, because Christ came and lived a perfect life, and died the sacrificial death, and then rose again, conquering the power of sin and death over our lives. Because of that, for those who believe in Him, we have now been transferred from one kingdom to another. 
literally surgically transplanted from Adam to Christ. We are no longer 83% in Adam and 17% in Christ. We're not in transit. He has transferred us. By position, he has transferred us from Adam to Christ for those who are found in him. Because he came. Because he came, church, we have hope. We can have joy when life is tough. That's what he did for us. Our Savior is amazing. He's incredible. He's astounding. And the depth of his love, let's be honest, our finite minds cannot grasp. The next part I want to talk about is because he transferred us from Adam to Christ. We are now in him and him in us. And we're going to break that down a little bit because for me, the past six months, the Lord has really been teaching me what that means. What it means positionally or by identity to be in Christ. I'm not an expert, but my goodness has it blown me away. I've got an associate's degree in Bible. I was raised by a godly father. I spent time at a Christian school on the mission field. I've been faithful to read my Bible every day, and yet I miss something that was so rich and so life-giving and so freeing that honestly... People can disagree with me, but I think this is probably one of the most beautiful aspects about Advent. Because not only does it magnify Christ, but it frees my heart from the bondage that I have put it under for the past 30 years. Or 31, 32, I don't know how old I am. Colossians 1, 26 and 27. If you want to turn there, go ahead, but I, I'm just going to read it here. It says, The mystery hidden for the ages, for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, that's all non-Jews, the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He abides in us, and we in Him. Abide simply means to live in. He abides in us, and us in Him. That's the mystery, church. That's what they were looking for all along. That's what they had hope for. That's what they longed for. And when Christ died, rose again, and ascended into heaven, He said, I will send you a helper, and I am going to live in you. The relationship changed at the moment he died from a king to his people to a father to his children. And that's in us. It's in us today. There's the freedom in that, to walk in that. The security in the fact that we are his children, his brothers, his sisters, his bride. It's so rich and so beautiful. The Israelites were looking and they missed it. 
Lord, give us eyes to see and humble hearts to hear the truth of your word. The part for me that has been revolutionary in my life, it's revolutionized my understanding of, of God, my identity in him, has changed the way that I function and lead in my marriage. It's changed the way that I, I parent. It's changed the way even in how I evangelize. This Christ that we've been talking about, the, the God that fulfilled 351 prophecies in a single man, the God who humbled himself to be in the form of a servant, the God who is divine and, and eternal and has been that God, that Christ has done something that's so beautiful and so overwhelming to me. It has literally brought me to my knees in my room by myself and caused me to ugly shower cry right there because I didn't get it for so long. And then when the truth finally hit me, I couldn't believe it. The mystery has been revealed in the person of Christ. That He came, He died, and I understand I'm repeating it. He came, He died, He rose again. And for those who are found in Him, this is the part that blew me away. He declares us righteous. He declares us justified. He declares us forgiven. Those three points blow me away. But he declares those things about me. But here's the amazing part. He's seated in the heavenlies. So if he's our high priest, historically a high priest was not allowed to sit down until the work was finished. So the high priest in the temple was not allowed to sit down while he was on the job. Not allowed. We have an eternal high priest and he's seated in the heavenlies. So what does that mean? It means his work is finished. So he, he said, I'm justified, which means I've been made right. He declares me to be sanctified, which means to be holy or set apart. And he declares me to be forgiven, saying, I remember your sins no more. And he's seated. So why have I been trying so hard for so long to prove to him that I'm worth it? Why have I been trying so hard to be holy, to be perfect, to be justified, to be forgiven. Now stick with me because what it sounds like, it could cause you to you know, tighten up a little bit. But stick with me because I'm going to break it down a little bit more. Tony as a person was extremely legalistic. Not many high schoolers are proud of the fact that they were the principal's favorite student. But guess what I was? Because I obeyed every rule. I mean, I tucked my shirt in so tight, that thing wasn't coming out at all. Because that was part of the uniform code. Like, that's just ridiculous. But I was proud of that fact. Because it was all about performance. Then that legalist, that prideful man, he goes to Bible school. Well, that, thankfully, God is bigger than me because Tony went to Bible school and I was so arrogant in my knowledge of the Bible. 
I knew a lot about the Bible. I didn't know God, but like relationally, but I knew about him and I knew a lot of things that he said. And I would sit there and I would go and I'd point all the fingers like, hey, we really need to do this. People would come to me, float my boat about all of the advice I could give them scripturally. Yet simultaneously, that arrogant man was 100% insecure. Because I knew the Bible, I knew my life, I wasn't able to walk it out, and I knew that Scripture said, your righteous acts are like dirty rags to me. So I sit here and I'm performing and performing and jumping through all the hoops, knowing that I'm not good enough, but telling everybody that there's hope. It was terrible, it was exhausting. And I was so focused on my performance because that was how I gauged my godliness. How disciplined was I? How many times did I pray? How long did I pray? How much time did I spend in the Word? How much time did I do this and that and this? How many times did I evangelize? Well, that evangelism session went bad, so I'm probably... And I would just sit there, and I was a slave But here in Hebrews, here in Hebrews it says a beautiful thing. It says that he knows we're inadequate, so Christ came. And then it says that the Father relates to us completely independent from how we are performing. He relates to us through the Son. And in his Son he is well pleased. Now again, I am talking position. I am talking about who we are in Christ, where we stand. In Christ, He is well pleased. Again, we are justified because of what Christ has done. For For those who believe in Christ, He has declared us to be right. For those who are in Christ, He has declared us to be holy and set apart as his children, as his brothers, as his sisters. For those who are in him, he declares us, declares to us that he remembers our sins no more because he has forgiven us, because he has already made the payment on our behalf. I'm actually going to get a drink of water. <laughs> lovely and church some scriptures that never made sense to me because I was so busy performing all of a sudden because I understand that Christ has finished that work on my behalf that's why he says my yoke is easy and my burden is light because he's finished it So so I can walk in freedom knowing that it's not about how good I'm doing. That's not how he's relating to me. He's relating to me in the finished work of Christ. And in Christ he is well pleased. So Tony, live in me and I in you. Walk in that freedom. It's not about how much you know. It's not about how good you're doing. It's not about how, how many people you tell about me. I love you. I made you right. I made you holy. I made you forgiven because of what I did. I didn't ask you when it came to this new covenant. 
I set the terms, I fulfilled them, then I brought you in. It had nothing to do with you, it has everything to do with me, because if it had something to do with you, guess what? You're inadequate. What freedom. Like, you know the weight that was lifted from this legalistic man's heart? To realize that all of a sudden it wasn't on me anymore? It wasn't on my ability? Yet so often that's what we do. We sit there and go, okay, thank you, Jesus, for the new covenant. Thank you. Thank you so much for what you've done on my behalf. Thank you for everything. I'm going to do my best to follow all 613 laws. Because I'm sure that I can do something. Now, again, I am not demeaning the law. The law was fulfilled in Christ. And the law is good because it brings us to the point of recognizing that we desperately need a Savior. But in that recognition of desperately needing a Savior, that Savior has told us that in Him we are good. In Him He has justified, sanctified, and forgiven us. Positionally, that's who we are. That's where we stand. And that's where we need to function from. From a completed work in Christ who is seated in the heavenlies in comparison to Tony jumping and running and doing everything that he can to make Christ proud of him. He said, I am well pleased in my son and you are in him, therefore I am well pleased in you. Now walk from that freedom. You can't believe and, and walk in a way that honors and glorifies God and be sinning. It doesn't work. It's a, it, they clash. They're opposite. Now, granted, we still have our flesh, and there is still the process of. And how I would describe the process of is September 14, two, or September 26, 2016. 24, 2016. We got it. That's when I got married. Pastor JT married us. Yeah, it was pretty fun. Hot as all get out, though. Anyways, that day, he, he married us. Now, that day, I was Tori's husband. Legally, before God and man, I was a married man, and my wife was Tori Percy. And it was a lovely day. That being said, I was a terrible husband because I had no idea what I was doing. I'd been married for about four hours and already offended her like 20 times. <laughs> like, it just, that's just how it goes. Right? Well, <laughs> that's how it goes for me. <laughs> four years in, I can say this with confidence because this is what my wife tells me. I am a substantially better husband than I was in 2016. By the grace of God, I am a better husband than I was. want to know why? It's because I've grown in knowledge and understanding of how to love and honor my wife. I've gotten to know her. I've gotten to know the relationship. Now, the days I've been a terrible husband, it didn't change the fact that I was still her husband. I will always be Tori's husband until the Lord takes me home. And that, that's beautiful. I have confidence that in my position, nothing changes. In my position, I am secured. Perfect love casts out fear. 
talk about security and position? Oh, now that makes sense. Because I functioned for the past 31 years as a terrified man trying to not incur God's wrath. His wrath isn't towards me because His wrath is towards those who are not in Adam. And how the Father associates to me as a believer is He associates to me from two perspectives. And that is either born and reborn. If you're born, guess what? You're in Adam. Period. That's what Romans says. No one is righteous, no, not one. In Adam, period. If you are born, you are in Adam. Then, if you're reborn, you're in Christ. If you're, if you're reborn, you are in Christ, fully in Christ. You're not 13% in Adam and 17% in Christ. That's not how it works. He does things in completion. He transferred, literally surgically transplanted you. The organ, when it gets transplanted from one patient, from a donor patient to a, a patient that's in need, when that patient gets it, well, guess what? That's fully their organ. They're not sharing it anymore. That's what Christ does with us. He says, okay, Tony, you were in Adam. I have transplanted you to my kingdom. Now function within my body. I am your head. Do what I tell you to do. Why? Because it's good for you. Because I love my body. And in my body, you have been made these things. You are justified. You are sanctified. You are forgiven. Abide in me and I in you. You are part of my body. I call you brother now with confidence because of what I have done on your behalf. You, you know how awesome that is? And, and maybe it's blowing me away and has been for the last six months because I walked for so long trying so stinking hard and realizing that I still was not good enough. Stop trying so hard, church. And again, I'm, I'm saying that, I'm not saying that like, to, that you can completely just be like, oh, I'm good and walk idle through your life and, and not be disciplined or pursue Christ. I'm not saying that at all because me and Tori, our relationship has grown because I pursued her because I love her. But come from a position of going, okay, he said he did these things. He's declaring them to be true. I choose to have faith in him and believe what he says about me is true, and now I will function from his finished work instead of trying to add to it. We, we consistently do Jesus plus something. Jesus plus Tony reading his Bible for 20 minutes, thanks. Jesus plus I gave a homeless guy $5. Jesus plus, I did the dishes for my wife and changed a poopy diaper. Like, no. Those things are feel-goods, but they're not the truth. The truth is that Jesus has said these things are complete. And he's seated in the heavenlies, meaning they are complete. Because his work, he can only sit when his work is finished. We grow in our knowledge and understanding, the, the practical holiness, and I want to clear this up because I know it could be, be understood, and I, I know it's because I've had these conversations with people where they say, oh, Tony, it sounds a lot like you're saying I'm good. Like I'm holy, perfect, and complete, yes, in your identity in Christ. And you need to be functioning from that identity instead of trying to be enough for him. As it, you need to be functioning as his child instead of someone trying to be, Right? Now, the part I want to clear up is because I've had these conversations with people, I've gotten feedback that it sounds a lot like I'm saying that you have to do nothing. That is not true. We have a living relationship with a living God. 
And to be in an intentional relationship with somebody, it takes just that, intentionality. And for us to be intentional, guess what? That means spending some quality time. That means honoring them with our actions. That means saying no to self when we want to do something for ourselves. If we know that it's not healthy for us or, or, or our relationship. God very clearly lays out in Scripture what it looks like to follow Him. And under the new, covenants, the new covenant, the new command that He gives is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Against these, there is no law. And He says that because if you love someone, guess what? You're not going to cheat on them. Put that in perspective with God, you're not going to have idols or things that distract you from pursuing and loving Him. If you love someone, you're not going to murder them. It's, it's kind of simple. There's, against these things, there is no law. If you're functioning in love, if you're functioning in my character, in who I say you are and, in who, or, and who I am in you, if you're functioning in that realm, guess what? There is no law. And if you function in this way, you will honor me, you will glorify me, and you will advance my kingdom. Because guess what? This gospel that I've explained this morning, that we are sanctified, justified, and forgiven, is intoxicating. It's beautiful. It's freeing. The law, the law comes in to bring us to our knees. The law brings an unbeliever to the point of recognition of going, wow, I desperately need something different because I am a sinner. That's what the law does. What the new covenant does, it says, you are in me. Live as one of my children. Live in a way that honors and glorifies me. And remember, as you're doing that, this is what I've done on your behalf. And it's huge. It's amazing, it's incredible, and it's astounding. Honestly, for me, it's overwhelming. It's so rich, it's so beautiful. And church, if you ever wonder how God sees those who are in Him, I'm going to read from you a passage, it's Isaiah 62, verses 3 through 5 and verse 12. I just kind of mashed them together. But listen, for those who are in Christ, this is how He sees you. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, your land no more termed desolate. But you shall be called my delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as your bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you shall be sought out, called a sought out, or called sought out, a city not forsaken. All of that because of what Christ has done on our behalf. All of that because Christ came. 
Church, that's why we take time each year to celebrate Advent. That's why we take time out of our busy lives and our busy schedules to recognize what He has done on our behalf. He came to do that for us, for each and every one of you who believe in this room. And for those who don't believe, guess what? It's not about how much you know or how cleaned up your life is or anything that you're doing. It's been done by the person who could. You can't, so stop trying and submit in faith and obedience. He made it simple because he knew we were incapable of doing the complicated, which was upholding the law. Church, I love you. And I'm so thankful that I get to be a part of this body. I pray that these truths would sink in. And again, I've been learning them for the past six months, so I understand if it kind of hits you wrong because it did me at first. I wanted to punch the podcast, which was my phone. But it, it kind of frustrated me. Like, wait, you're telling me everything I've been doing has been wrong so far because I've been trying really hard and it's not working. I'm going to close the sermon and after this we're going to be singing Silent Night. And I, I want you to just listen to the lyrics. We're going to be singing it, I think, no or little instruments. And I, I really want you to just sing the lyrics. Sing the lyrics in the recognition of the truth of what Christ has done on your behalf. He came in a manger in a silent night for the purpose of being utterly humiliated on a cross to bring you to redemption, to bring you to glory with Him when He returns. That's what he did for you. Focus your gaze on Christ. Get to know him because he is absolutely amazing. The only thing that I use the word awesome for is Christ. And it's because he is the only thing that strikes me with awe. This is who he is. The divine son sacrificing himself on my behalf and I know who I am. And that's hard. But he served me in that way when I wasn't even looking. When I wasn't even capable of understanding. He did that on my behalf. If you would just pray with me and worship and come on up if anyone needs prayer or wants to chat after. I'll be standing over there with my wife. Um, and I think of Jeff as well. If you would, just please bow with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you boldly because we're your children, but humbly because we understand what you've done on our behalf. You are such a good and awesome God. Lord, I pray that that you would just open our hearts, remove the veil of blindness, help us to grow in understanding and knowledge of who you are. 
May we walk in a manner that honors and glorifies your name because you are worthy of that, Lord. Thank you for this morning and thank you for using me. It's been an absolute honor. In your name, amen.